0: This episode of the Glossy Podcast is sponsored by Shopify Plus. From first sketch to retail floor, you need a commerce platform to help you scale at the speed of your ideas. That's why the world's fastest growing brands like Steve Madden, Chubbies, Sportsac, and Gymshark rely on Shopify Plus to sell to their customers around the world. You'll be able to go wherever your customers are, from New York to Milan to Instagram. And they'll make sure you look brilliant in every size from pop-up shop to mobile. Join over 5,000 brands on Shopify Plus at shopify.com glossy. Hello and welcome to The Glossy Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. I'm your host, Hillary Milneys, and on this episode, John McFeeters, the co-founder and co-CEO of Stadium Goods, discussed the far-fetched acquisition, building a business in China, and the convergence of luxury and streetwear. Hope you enjoy it. Hi, John.
1: Hey there. Thanks for having me.
0: So, you know, we've, we've chatted in the past, but as we were just saying, a lot's changed since since we last spoke. You are now a Farfetch company. How's that been so far? It's super new. What, like two months, not even?
1: Yeah, yeah, a little less than two months. Um, I, I mean, it's been an incredible ride. You know, I think um, obviously it was a pretty fast track there towards the announcement end of last year. Mm-hmm. And then uh, top of this year, we've just been uh, really digging in, getting a sense of what's to come and some of the really fun things that we're working on are mm-hmm. starting to come to light. So yeah, very exciting times, right? To say the least.
0: Yeah, can you take us back a little bit? Like, when did when did conversations first start? Uh, were you and uh, your co-founder Jed thinking about you know what what was next for the company? You, it's still pretty young. You started it just a few years ago, that's right.
1: Yeah, I mean we're a little over three years old. Uh-huh. Um, I mean there's there's a, there's a lot to it, but I, I think in general, I mean Jed and I were were serial entrepreneurs. We we've been through. A lot of other types of business situations you know we've we did cover a lot of ground in a mm-hmm. short period of time yeah. but um i think when we when we envisioned growing the business we didn't necessarily anticipate uh, a move like that happening mm-hmm. that quickly and um it was crazy for it to come to fruition obviously uh, but we we had a bunch of incredible conversations with the Farfetch guys going back probably more than a year and change prior um and i think the thing that stands out the most was just. Um, how how great their team was, the synergies, a lot of things that really lined up mm-hmm. very very well, mm-hmm. and our first our main goal was really just to launch. Uh, Farfetch as a sales channel for us, and that was that was really where things began was mm-hmm. stadium goods selling on Farfetch and and presenting our goods to Farfetch customers, and that ended up opening the door to some. Other exciting opportunities, the but ball,
0: the ball got rolling. Um,
1: but yeah, you know, we had it, we had a chance to work with each other and get a sense of things and learn about each other's values. And
0: yeah. and yeah, here you are today. Here we are. So, just why don't you explain a little bit about how Stadium Goods model works? Uh, because it is an aftermarket company for sneakers, in that you know, you're not going out and, and seeking, you know, just like in, in a traditional inventory way. Can you just describe that and then how that works? Through Farfetch now,
1: for sure. So Stadium Goods is an aftermarket model where we, we operate under a consignment principle, which means we're taking goods from sellers and then selling them and taking a commission, basically. Mm. Um, you know, you walk in, you have a pair of shoes, a single pair of shoes for sale. It's brand new, it's unworn. We don't trade in anything that's used or anything that isn't pristine. It's it's got to be an incredible, impeccable condition. Um, we take that item, and if when we sell it, we take a twenty percent commission. Um, but that item, when we have it, it's it's available for sale on stadiumgoods.com, on our app, and then through a bunch of channel partnerships around the world. And mm-hmm. we sell internationally as well. And that's that's something we're focused on. But eBay, Amazon, uh, Mall into China as an example, and then more recently Farfetch mm-hmm. as a channel. Right. So So those goods that we take and we authenticate and we do the diligence on to know that they're a thousand percent above the board. We're holding those in our warehouse, and upon sale, we ship them out mm-hmm. as fast as humanly possible mm-hmm. to a whole bunch of different destinations.
0: Right, and and now that um, you know, with the Farfetch deal, is it are, are the um, shoes only going to be sold through Farfetch? Or? No, it's. Oh. I
1: mean, we're we're still uh, we're still holding true to our our, our principles of being as what what I call true omni-channel, which is trying to sell it in as many places as possible. That's still one of the guiding principles of the company. Mm-hmm. Um, we are selling our goods on Farfetch and, and finding ways to, to make that really exciting and exclusive on its own and special. Um, but we still plan to sell through other channels and... Continue that piece of business.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting approach and and can you tell us you know how when you were first starting the business you came to this you, you know that that became the purpose was to get these sneakers into as many places as possible Like what was the the market particularly the the sneaker reselling market like and what did you think that, that Stadium Goods could fix?
1: Yeah. so, so there were there were there a couple main mission statement concepts that we really drive behind. The mm-hmm. first was that the aftermarket needed to be cleaned up. We needed to really elevate the experience, create something that was uh, that felt more premium and, and luxury in the space, and along with that, best in show, e-commerce, kind of adding trust that, that didn't exist in the market prior. So we really saw ourselves as trying to innovate on that model. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, bringing, like, if, if at the time, I think Omnichannel was mostly just considered e-commerce and brick-and-mortar when most people talk about it, and right. for us, as, as people started adding other channels and we started seeing some brands playing around um, on, so, on some of the larger channels like an eBay or an Amazon, it gave us the idea that we really wanted to marry up as many of those opportunities as possible, mm-hmm. and eBay was our first partnership. We launched maybe two or three months after we opened our doors, and that proved out it it, it 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 showed us that there were ways we could really drive volume through some of these channel partnerships and mm-hmm. as we were growing our business on our own it, be- it just it became an important piece and something that sellers time and time again would come to us and they'd be like you know that's really incredible that we can sell our products through you and through all these other channels you're like they saw that we were bringing a lot of opportunity to the table right. and I think that that's one of the reasons why our, our seller base has been so Strong,
0: right? Because you weren't cornering them like, okay, this is only going to be on StadiumGoods.com, uh, limiting that that customer
1: reach. Yep, exactly.
0: And it, yeah, can you give us an idea, like, so where where were people already looking for for these types of sneakers? Like, were they already on eBay and, and Amazon, or?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I think I think a lot of a lot of them were for sale on eBay and Amazon, and, and at at conferences and trade shows, and, and a lot of sort of mom and pop smaller operations. Mm-hmm. Um, people wanted these goods, they were going to find a place to buy them, but you were sort of rolling the dice in a lot of ways transactionally. If, you know, you would kind of try to assess the, the honesty of the purveyor, mm-hmm. you would look at ratings and scores and, and and try to feel your way through it based on history that you might see on an eBay or, um, or relationships that you have. You know, I I, th- I think for us, we wanted to create a brand that really drove home the the values of our platform, and mm. and also let people know who we were. I think the the retail piece was a really important uh, communication tool mm-hmm. in terms of saying, "Hey, here we are. This is our space. This is what we look like. Here's where we are creating content. You can see it. You can understand the personalities that are that are that are part of the." The brand right. experience, yeah,
0: it's a real brand. I think that's that's important for any online brand to have that in-store recognition of okay, this is real. It exists in the real world. I'm sure it's even more important when it comes to to a brand playing in your space.
1: Yeah, and I, you know, I, I I love retail. You know, I think it, it's it's something that gets a lot of flack these days as certain parts of the retail industry suffers. But for us, it's it's been an incredible success and something that we. Are excited to nurture mm-hmm. and is in the it? Future.
0: You have the one store in, so- in Soho. Any other physical stores right now?
1: Um, right now, right now, it's just the one. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, and you know, so it's it's interesting to to look at how luxury has played in the spe- in the sneaker space because you're obviously dealing with, with rare sneakers. Like the, Some of the, the price tags on, on the shoes that have sold on your site are, are pretty crazy, right?
1: Some of them are pretty crazy. How yeah. high have they gone? Um, I think 65000 is the highest item to date, what, what, I believe. What, what, I think it was a uh, Nike Air Mag shoe, um, which is like the Back to the Future auto lace <laughs> okay. with the lights. Oh, yeah. You know? Wow. Um, but we've had other expensive items. Sometimes, sorry, sometimes sneakers, sometimes collectibles um yeah, our right. aov is nowhere close to that obviously right huh. right
0: right but still it can it can get there nope. uh how did that one sell I'm just out of curiosity
1: you know there there there's a market for those types of products there's uh-huh. there's, there's people that are looking for something that's really special singular unique um something that that, that no one else would ever be able to find and mm-hmm. we we sell those goods from time to time mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not I, like personally, I, I could never spend that type of money on a, on a pair of shoes, um, Same, <laughs> but, but, you know, and, and not to get too much into who, who those customers are, but you know, it's, it's, it's definitely a unique individual mm-hmm. that comes through that's willing to spend that kind right. of money on a pair and of did,
0: shoes. Did they buy it online? Did they come to the store? They came to the
1: store. Yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> white white glove service. Exactly. Uh, and so, whenever you you put it that way, it, it makes a little bit more sense when you when you think about the luxury uh, and and sneaker worlds combining. It's you have these these pairs of shoes that are really unique, they're rare. Uh, how do you sort of make sense of of those worlds? Climbing? You know,
1: you know. So I, it's it's funny because those high price point items to me, that's kind of the outlier. Right. Like it's not really part of the broader shift. But one of the things that has really helped us in, in terms of changing tides in general is – and I, I've, I've talked about this before, so it's not like original thought as to this podcast. But um, for a long time, brands and retailers have put consumers in buckets where they'll say, OK, here's the high-end luxury customer. Here's like the, the women's luxury footwear customer. Here's the male streetwear sneaker guy. Mm-hmm. All of these buckets have all kind of gotten mashed up, and because consumers, they just want what they want. They don't really care what those those predetermined lines in the sand are as it relates to distinction. So, I think as as luxury and streetwear have have blurred, and as, as sneakers have become more acceptable to wear in luxury settings mm-hmm. and back and forth, like you just have a consumer that knows what they want and they need a place to go and get it.
0: Yeah, and is that and that's not new, of course. Uh, but but I'm sure since. Just since stadium goods launched that the the sneaker market, the, the the competitors in the category have have changed a lot. What what has changed?
1: Um, well, I, I think on a timeline, those lines have become more blurred. Mm-hmm. I think like three to four to five years ago, it was still a lot more defined. It was sneakers and streetwear hadn't made that move. I know, I know that when um, we were lucky enough to get the support of LVMH at one yeah. point, and th- that was that was an incredible moment for us because we hadn't seen quite how far our world was going to go into into luxury at the time right. and and for that to be realized that was like wow okay there's like a changing of the garden in a lot of ways where not only sneakers and streetwear are I mean sneakers and streetwear were getting tons more in the way of mass awareness and 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 credibility mm-hmm. right um, but the aftermarket as well i think um, even if you're looking at, if you're looking at something like women's fashion and what the aftermarket means to women's fashion going back on a the timeline there no one was shopping for those goods in the aftermarket the way that they are now. Mm-hmm. You know, my my wife bought a jacket at the Real Real in Soho not that long ago, and it was, you know, it was just as seamless as if she was buying it from a brand retailer. Right. And and I think that's that represents an incredible consumer shift as well into uh, comfortability with the aftermarket and mm-hmm. people just honing in on those products that they want and knowing that they can get them without it having what at one point was a very dirty connotation of secondary mm-hmm. secondhand goods mm-hmm. um,
0: yeah do you think um online has contributed to this like democratization uh, totally. for the space and yeah i'm sure the, there's an overlap you could look at the aftermarket you look at that sneakers as well like like you said you wanted to clean it up because not only was it you know un- uncertain you couldn't really trust who you're buying from but People on the outside, if you probably didn't know how to even go about finding certain sneakers, it was very like in- inclusive insular market.
1: Yeah, and you, yeah, I think the I think the other piece of it is you need a curator. You need you need someone that can explain to you what's going on on mm-hmm. that side of things. You right. know, I, th- I think especially as as like sneakers has, has uh, have definitely gone decisively more mass than where we were five years ago. But a lot of consumers is they're coming into into our space, whereas they're touching and feeling the world for the first time, they need a little bit of help in dis- in terms of deciphering the products, what they mean, the lineage, the heritage of things, the storylines of the products. You know, it's it when you have this immense breadth of product, you need to be able to distill it down into what's digestible and explainable and easy to communicate.
0: Mm-hmm. And just understanding um, pricing and yeah. and why things are the way that they are. The pricing
1: and demand, mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, not, everything we have isn't. $50,000 you know we have right. a lot of stuff that's under retail too right it, it, it's a mix of a lot of different price points mm-hmm.
0: we'll be right back the success of your business should never be limited by the commerce platform you run on that's where Shopify Plus comes in whether you're kicking off an exclusive flash sale or epic product drop you'll be able to process thousands of transactions a minute without worrying about broken cards or crash checkouts Shopify Plus is tailored for fashion speed experience and personalization Learn more about Shopify Plus at shopify.com slash glossy. Hey, Glossy listeners, Danny Parisi here, and I am back to talk to you about the fifth and final episode of Glossy Trend Watch, Streetwear Edition. For this episode, we are joined by designer and grandfather of streetwear, Jeff Staple, to discuss the rising popularity of the collab, what separates a collaboration from a licensing agreement, and why he thinks streetwear is a virus. You can catch every episode of Glossy Trend Watch right here in the Glossy podcast feed. To stay up to date with the latest podcast from glossy be sure to subscribe and leave us any feedback you have now back to the episode uh, and it, are there any downsides to that that you know s- sneakers and streetwear are growing more mass and, and the democratization
1: um not not to me I think that I think that there's a lot of opportunity for a lot of different people as things are shifting around and that that liquidity and that flexibility is something that drives the market as a whole um, one one of the things that that I've really enjoyed to see as we've grown our business is the international demand for our products and how that has changed mm-hmm. in the few years that we've been around. Um, you know, I, th- I think brands and traditional retailers have a hard time servicing those dem- that demand. Mm-hmm. And and if you look into a country like China or Russia or Mexico, even there's people that want to buy products just like they do here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and and the brands and retailers don't always service that need yeah. the way that. The demand needs to be serviced, and that's mm-hmm. that's been an incredible opportunity for us.
0: Yeah, and, and is in China is your second biggest market?
1: Uh, right now, China is our second biggest, um, and then it sort of it changes depending on other promotions beyond that w- with what we're doing. But yeah, Ch- China's a big market. We see a lot of opportunity there. We see a ton of opportunity in many many markets. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was one of the first ones where we really planted a flag. And
0: in... yeah, talk Good. about a little bit how you how you did that. That's something that we're looking into all the time. Is just you know, how, how companies are figuring out the, the customer dynamic there, the best way to reach customers, and it's it's a, a pretty, it's an undertaking to, to transition.
1: Yeah, you know, so, so for me, there's, there's a lot of lessons we learned there that apply other places, but I really believe in creating content that's unique for whatever region you're servicing. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of brands still retask content that they make in the U.S. There's a lot of subtitle content. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't quite Hit that organic resonance point with consumers um, we've we've done a lot as we've expanded into new regions to create content that's specific for the areas that we go into and that was that was a big learning mm-hmm. um, I think that that was one part, and then I think the other thing is that startups specifically have a really I'm trying to think of the right way to put it. Start, startups can can move very aggressively internationally because they don't have to deal with the same bureaucracy that much larger multinational organizations have to deal with. so mm-hmm. so we can go and see an opportunity and move essentially really, really fast to try to capture it, where that's just that's that's something that 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 much larger entities struggle with. Right. and And I think for all young entrepreneurs and startup people that are trying to innovate, you can you can make big waves in in foreign countries because mm-hmm. of some of the ability you have and that sort of like lean, fast moving nature of a startup.
0: Right. And I'm sure it's it's the perfect storm because you have you have that ability and the agility, but you also are, you know, dealing with Brands like Nike and Adidas that those customers would recognize, and
1: that yes, that that helped as well. Yeah, and
0: do you mean when you say just like the ability to make fast decisions? Like, do you mean like launching on uh, certain platforms over there? Like, what 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 Um, does Launching on platforms,
1: testing and pivoting content strategies, Mm -hmm. testing? I mean, testing anything really. Um, Taking part in promotions, kind of like changes to product mix. Uh You know,
0: do you sell on Tmall? We
1: we do sell on Mm Tmall. Yeah, I mean. It's a, it's a really interesting market. Yeah. So it's, it's also not for the faint of heart. It's right. like uh, there's a lot that you need to figure out to do it. But um, we sort of led with getting there and opening it up and then tried to figure out things as we, as we, as we went.
0: Mm-hmm. And how did that work internally? Do you have anyone, like any single person dedicated to that? To we, that we, have,
1: we, have a, we have a team. Mm-hmm. You know, we... Um, yeah, we we have I I don't want to get too much into the the staffing of it, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, we we have dedicated people mm-hmm. that that rock on that business specifically, and it, it's interesting because a lot of a lot of people that have touched that business has have gravitated into other parts of the international content mix or other platform business mm-hmm. that we that we do because we've learned a lot there. Right. With that, with that platform specifically, mm-hmm. that it's it's informed a lot of other decisions we've made.
0: And tell us about what like what content works works well for that market versus what what type of content works here. How do those two strategies differ?
1: Um, so, the, the two biggest pieces for me are well, actually there's three. One's around messaging and how people interact with messaging, which is it's a, messaging in China is a much different animal mm-hmm. with, uh, with WeChat and the way that people communicate and. and and how they interpret the messaging on those channels—that's one big piece. The other is video. Um, we've we've done pretty well with live video mm-hmm. and broadcast, which is something I think strategically where people are aligned here in the U.S. But it doesn't resonate quite the same way that like live tune in and then shop right. thing that that not even just China but that Asia in general has has really turned into a thing. Right. Um, and then the, the third part of it is more. Influencer strategy, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. with with people that have huge followings, and specifically in Asia, those followings drive a lot of commerce. And I know that that it does here as well, but it feels more like more of a driver to me internationally mm-hmm. than it does here. I think right. there's too much noise in our influencer space that it doesn't translate the same way into mm-hmm. into sales and adoption.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, as it seems an, like it's more places. Yeah, it seems like it's more like guaranteed there that like this will lead to well, this it's,
1: a, it's an important piece of the mix uh-huh. for sure
0: uh and so so, so yeah are you uh, then how do you how are you able to take like what you've what you learned from that and, and translate it to a content strategy uh over here
1: yeah you know so i i think not to give away too much of the <laughs> the, secret, the sauce. secret sauce but that localized content piece really is relevant mm-hmm. in in a lot of countries that you can operate in and that's something that we've been able to Replicate and and hang our hat on. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so to back to your, the point around how you you're launching in, in, in new markets, and it's it's easy to do as a, from like that startup phase. How do the brands? How does? What's your relationship with the brands like?
1: So I mean, I mean, look, we're aftermarket, so uh-huh. we, we we don't sell goods directly from brands, mm-hmm. um, but we 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 have good relationships, and we we kind of get a sense for where things are. I think depending on who you talk to. Um, one thing that one thing that remains really constant is the aftermarket drives a lot of activity and energy mm-hmm. around products. And I think that's something that has been um a nice after effect of what's happened in the aftermarket is not only just driving heat and hype around certain products, but also kind of maintaining that content story around the lineage of products. You know, if 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 you take a take a brand like Jordan, right, where there are releases happening pretty much every week mm-hmm. or every couple of weeks. If you see a new style, let's say it's a new Jordan for the drops. It's, it's not easy for brands or retailers to tell that story of the history of that silhouette, whereas we can contextualize it a lot with content. So I think mm-hmm. I think that helps us, in a lot of ways, um, being able to tell these rich rich product stories,
0: right? Because they're kind of moving moving a little bit on a different.
1: It's a path. it's a different different cadence. Yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, and but do you, do you think that it's helped to legitimize the aftermarket? Um, Industry because you know, I'm sure if you're a Nike, you might have held it at arm's length before. Now it's like, okay, LVMH is investing, you have now you're acquired by Farfetch. What's the uh, yeah, I mean,
1: I mean, it's a hard, it's a tricky one to answer Mm -hmm. because there's still a lot that's being flushed out. But I, I compare aftermarket to the aftermarket shift to uh, a retail brick and mortar e-commerce shift. There was a time where people weren't buying product online, Mm -hmm. right? And you had to go to stores and people got more and more comfortable going to e-commerce outlets to buy their goods until e-commerce kind of dominated. And I'm not saying that aftermarket is going to dominate per se, but as that comfort level is increased and as players like a stadium goods and in a lot of other industries have have risen up to really elevate those experiences, brands have taken notice. And and I, I think that helps... Nurture a dialogue. It helps uh, forge some of these relationships and and turn them into something that, at some point in time, there's going to be more of an interaction between whether it's traditional retail and brands and aftermarket. It's it's all part of the same ecosystem, Mm
0: -hmm. right? Because you have that demand, it it has a halo effect for for the brands, Uh, and yeah, it seems like it'd be hard to ignore. I would agree. (laughs) Uh, And so you know, we're watching we're watching this. like you said the the lines blurring between you know s- sneakers and streetwear and and more mass fashion and and luxury do you see is there going to be like an unblurring or how do you where do we go from here
1: in in my experience in life you can't really put the genie back in the bottle like i think consumers like having the freedom to like what they want mm-hmm. you know those the blurred lines really open things up for a lot of different types of People from different walks of life in different parts of the world. You know, I, I don't, I don't see it changing.
0: Mm-hmm. And what does that, does that take anything out of the, like, experience that it attracted people to the to the sneaker and streetwear uh, world in the first place?
1: I don't, I don't think so because I, in, in my mind. You're always going to have these really hot, sought-after products, these things that are friends and families or, or, or difficult to get, sought-after mm-hmm. things that are sort of tip of the spear mm-hmm. from a hype standpoint. And and I don't see the distribution models changing in such a way that that would shift. I also think there's just not enough cool product in the world. I think people are always looking for more and more mm-hmm. hot stuff to buy. And not, right. that that's, not that that's the best thing, but um, I, 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 I do I do... I do think that consumerism in general is always trying to trying to sort of soak up more energy product and mm-hmm. that there's there's just not enough of it in the world.
0: Right. It's almost self-generating. Yeah. Like there's always going to be the next the next thing. And so in your opinion, has the culture around around sneakers and streetwear changed?
1: I mean, it's, it's definitely changed in some ways. It's become more multifaceted and others. You know, I, I I like how much movement there's been in the space. You know, in the past three years, we've seen huge changes in terms of, like, the cultural makeup of how the product is created. Mm-hmm. Brands have moved around. Interest in those brands has shifted dramatically in three years. It's They've gone up and down, and things have changed. And new, uh, whether whether it's focusing on entertainers or new up-and-coming designers, to me that, that energy is really driving interest with the youth, mm-hmm. and it's needed because the, the the older, more traditional machines that were – more sports marketing and focused um, obviously that's that's always going to be a huge thing but it's just it's not where a lot of, of young culture is today mm-hmm. and and i think seeing all that change has been really exciting and it's, for us it's been a, it's been a positive thing to yeah be a part I'm, of it i'm sure.
0: sure i'm sure you can basically watch like the shift in interest going from shoe to shoe or brand to brand yeah i
1: mean it it it, it it comes hard and fast and unexpected and it hits, and then and, and you're like, wow, didn't see that coming. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I mean, it's pretty crazy.
0: Right. And so, if you are like, do you have any like lessons for brands or retailers that aren't in this space for how they can at least try to or start to like emulate the same effect?
1: Yeah, you know, so, so emulate the same effect is dangerous because yeah. I think there's this.
0: If you're trying, there's you're this knee-jerk, <laughs> there's this
1: knee-jerk kind of like reaction for 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 some brand marketers to like look at something and say that worked great, X worked great, so let's try X, right? You know, again, yeah. And what really stands out to me about some of the excitement that we're seeing now, it's really about identifying talent and personality and gravitas early, mm-hmm. um, before the hype machine hones in on it and says, right. "Wow, this is it."
0: Do you and mean not like a in what in what areas the talent are you like should they be looking at? Well,
1: I think I think of designers, yeah. you know, and pe- people that that, I mean, if if you look at Nike for example, and you've got whether it's someone um, like an Errolson-Hugh and an acronym or Virgil Abloh with his products mm-hmm. or uh, any one of a, a list of other people that they work with, Nike Nike now is it's to me they're doing an incredible job of finding people as they're growing, but but still placing bets. Mm-hmm. And saying, you know what, we're going to put energy behind this and sort of nurture it and be a part of what this becomes as opposed to finding a big name and then just getting them in on the mix. And Mm -hmm. I think for me, that's the that's the main learning. It's how do you engage with people that that fit organically with your brand Mm -hmm. or your retailer and how do you empower them to to do something special that can then resonate beyond what you're doing? Right. and there's it, a lot more risk in that and that's a lot of brands aren't comfortable taking that risk but that's where the spoils of war right sit it separates yeah. the,
0: the men from the boys yep as we're looking at this it seems like you guys are at an interesting place of striking exclusivity with with like democracy in in this in this particular category how do you define like do you think that the very nature of how we define something like like luxury is is changing
1: I th- I look, I, th- I think in, in some ways it is. I think that luxury means means a lot more now hmm. than it did before, where it was, it was specifically high-end branded houses making products, and now luxury can be a sneaker. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of that has changed, but at the same time, consumers still look for brands that resonate. They still look for heritage, things that they have an affinity for or a nostalgia for or... Um, some kind of history and trust with a brand, so a lot of that remains consistent. I think it's just it's it, it, it's about making sure that you're innovating
0: mm-hmm. right. in a
1: way to keep up with the change and the growth.
0: Right. What do you think is most the most valuable currency a brand a brand can have right now? You, you mentioned you know just having the eye for for talent, not just chasing or, or trying to repeat what what has worked in the past. Uh, what does that boil down to, and in, in, in what they should be really focusing on?
1: I think it's. This, this is a, a that's a really tough question. Um, in my mind, it's it's listening and mm-hmm. and making sure that you are aware to the best of your ability of how shifts are taking place, mm-hmm. um, and then being able to move with speed. Right. Um, to me, that's that's really the currency, mm-hmm. and cu- coupling that with like the brand legacy and and the heritage of what you have with. With the ability to, to maneuver, in 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 a, in a world where things can change literally at the drop of a dime, mm-hmm. um, that that to me that's that's the real currency of the day.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Like you mentioned, heritage brands, uh, there, it, it comes down. I think it's a really interesting question about, like, who's, who's relevant now and who's not anymore. Uh, and it seems like, like you said, just knowing who the customer is and being able to adapt is, is kind of what...
1: Yeah, I, you know, I, th- I think the, the other thing, too, is that, I mean, traditional luxury is, I, to my, I believe, having an incredible time uh-huh. in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. right? So it's, 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 it's also about making some of these changes and moving the structure of innovation... Around so that you, mm-hmm. you're in a position to capitalize while times are good, as opposed to waiting for something to go wrong so, and your 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 OG base, so to speak, defaulter, and then mm-hmm. trying to find ways to connect. Like it's you you have to you have to be firing on a bunch of cylinders,
0: mm-hmm. right? I think it comes back to talent too, just yeah. having the people who are looking out for that. Um, great. Well, what's on what's next on your to do list?
1: Um, you know, I, I like I think I think it's going to be a really exciting year. Um, a lot of things on the to-do list, but um, I, I think for now we're, we're just we're re- we're really excited about what what's in store and what we're going to learn and what we're going to experience over mm-hmm. the next however many years. Yeah. You know, this is it's definitely, um, it's definitely the next stage in our evolution and our growth. And I, you I know, mean, I've I've been a part of a lot of different types of businesses and startups, but I think what we're going to see during this next phase is going to be very formative and yeah. educational.
0: Yeah. Great. Well, we're really excited to watch for it. Uh, yeah. Thanks for coming in, John. Oh,
1: well, thanks for having me. Of course. Always, always appreciate it.
0: We hope you enjoyed the episode. A special thanks to Gianna Cappadona, the producer of this podcast. As a thank you for listening, we're passing along a limited-time introductory offer on a three-month subscription to Glossy Plus. Glossy Plus members access unlimited stories, exclusive research, and more. Join today for just $49. That's $80 off by entering the code INTRO at checkout at glossy.co slash subscribe. And as always, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher and Anchor FM and leave us any feedback you have.